Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me on this humid Sunday night is Steve Sippa. Steve, this past weekend, as part of the Mets Red Sox series, the Mets gave away a Jesse Orozco bobblehead, depicting Jesse Orozco celebrating their Game 7 World Series win against said Red Sox. So if you could immortalize one other moment from the 1986 season in bobblehead form, what would it be? I'd go with the infamous barroom brawl in Houston, I think it was. Ah, you took my answer. I had some backup. Oh, okay, yeah. sorry. sorry. So, what, so you're going with like Tim Tuffle punching a police officer? Is that, your, that may not go over very well. I mean, it could, you could figure, you know, maybe if they do a bunch of different bobbleheads, you could connect them all hmm. so you have an entire like bar scene. You could do the mug shots, too, I guess. Oh, that would be good, yeah. Don't think that's going to work. So I had, a, I had a couple backup answers, both of which involved Keith Hernandez, shockingly. Uh, so my first one was uh, Keith and Jesse from the famous scene in Game 6 of the NLCS when Kevin Bass was up. 
and uh, Keith told Orozco that if he threw one more curveball, he'd fight him. Of course. Think of that mound conference depicted in bobblehead form. Or I think the one I'm going with is uh, Game 6 of the World Series when Keith is just in the locker room having a beer and watching the game on TV because he didn't want to move because of superstition. It worked. So. It did. So just Keith with his like, feet up on Davy Johnson's desk with a uh, Miller Lite. Or whatever beer sponsor is currently sponsoring the uh, the Mets. Or wants to sponsor the bobblehead. Could be whatever brew you want. So this is episode 136 of Amazing Avenue Audio. I promised an email edition this weekend, and you will get it. Because you sent 17 emails in, you motherfuckers. <laughs> I've had a long day as it is. I just finished moving out of my new apartment. I don't have... Or out of my old apartment into my new apartment. I finished cleaning the old apartment today. My lungs are now filled with dust and dog dander. I'm pretty sure. That's a good feeling. Oh, yeah. My legs hurt. I still have no internet at the new place. I'm on my parents' porch right now. After I got all the notes done for this episode and everything moved out of the old apartment, I'm like, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to get a big old, like, 23-4 a beer on the way over. Pop that during the podcast and drink it throughout the podcast. Unfortunately, Steve, I forgot that it's Sunday and in Connecticut... All the liquor stores close early on Sunday. Ooh, that is. I mean, it is crappy. an improvement over most of my life and most of my drinking life when they weren't open at all on Sunday. But I had to dig into what uh, meager stuff I hadn't drank out of the old apartment. And I've got a uh, a normal sized bottle of City Steam Chillin' Wheat Ale. So I'm gonna crack that. Drink it right out of the bottle because it's one of those weekends. And now we're going to answer 17 of your emails. We should get right to that, but we're not going to. Because no. there's some actual news. The Mets traded for Addison Reed, I guess yesterday. They announced yesterday? I don't remember. It's been a blur. I think so. Sending Miller Diaz and Matt Cook to the Diamondbacks. I mean, we all watched the pen this weekend, right? This is kind of necessary. Something. Yeah. <clears throat> Just like I, you know, was sad to see Casey Meisner get traded when we got Clippered. It was like a necessary move, and I can't get angry at it because it's really something that needs to be improved. So similarly, I'm not going to get sad at the loss of those two guys for Reed. I had him in an AL only fantasy league with the White Sox a while back, and I remember him giving me saves and not much else. Which I know yeah, is it was, the kind of analysis you come to this podcast for. That's the same it's the same kind of impression I had that he had a bunch of saves, but he was otherwise like not a good reliever over the last couple of years, which is more or less the case. Um you know, his FIP and X FIP or whatever were not, not as bad as his ERA, so hopefully uh being in a less hitting friendly park at City Field will help a little bit. I mean, he's a major league reliever, and there's some track record there. Right, so I mean, it's, it's not, you know... He's not like an over-the-hill... Right, he's the same know, age as Cook, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's still young. He has a couple of years left, I believe, under control, team control. He's not been a mess, necessarily. You know, he hasn't been he the like greatest. A, he was but... like the first person 
to the majors from that draft class, as I recall, too. Yeah, so I think. It's, it's a decent move, especially for the price. I mean, you know, those two guys are not going to amount to anything, really. Let's be realistic. I mean, he's... All the numbers are down significantly this year with the Diamondbacks, but, you know, in the past, he's struck out a well-above-average rate of batters, and the walk rate hasn't been terrible. It's been roughly league average. That's good. Uh, you know, he had some home run issues last year in Arizona. They've gone away, but he's not missing bats now this year. He's been better in August. I don't know. It's an, it's an August waiver wire pickup. He's got more pedigree than most of those dudes exactly. that you'd expect to get on August 29th. I'll pitch in the seventh inning. He's probably better than Hansel Robles. <laughs> Uh, and they gave up, you know, whatever. They gave up two guys with a chance. Cook I like more, but again, he's the same age. And he didn't exactly kill Double A this year. I run him up briefly at Amazing Avenue earlier in the season. I'll write him up again. Um, but the Cliff Notes got a heavy fastball. Slider got better this year. Uh, improved even in between my my two looks. I saw him in the pen twice. He has started uh, for them as well a little bit this year. You know, he has a chance to someday be the 2015 version of Addison Reed, so whatever. Uh, Miller Diaz, I've seen each of the last three years now. It's a live arm, but never really developed into anything. You know, starting for St. Lucie, but he's a reliever all the way. If he's anything, I don't think the breaking ball gets there and the fastball command comes and goes. And it's not that good a fastball. Touch 95 for me in Brooklyn, it was more 90-93 the last couple of years of the starter, you know, maybe he gets there in relief, but Cook's there comfortably now. I think he's probably the better prospect, but, you know, neither of these guys are going to make a top 25 list or anything. Mm. So it's fine. I don't know how they're going to fill out rotation in St. Lucie and Binghamton the rest of the year. They've really uh, done a number on those pitching staffs. Yeah. Bingo's probably going to the playoffs. I guess they'll just keep, uh, I guess be like Gazelman, you know, uh, and yeah. Laura, which I guess is fine. Lugo. Lugo's up in Vegas now. And actually pitching he? pretty well, so he, uh, might, he might make the Vegas playoff rotation at this point. I've, like been away for, I've been away from everything for yeah. like uh, a while. That actually reminds me, I need to do the minor league report. Whoops. Yeah, you can do that after, after we're done <laughs> with this podcast, which could be hours from now. Huh. So the other thing you missed... Uh, on your vacation, Steve, is that the Mets lost 2 of 3 to Boston and the offense wasn't good. It's Panic City is back. Mets Twitter will literally only be happy if they win every game from now until the end of the season, I'm pretty sure. Reasonable expectation. It is totally reasonable. I mean, look, the Nats have won three straight home series against the Dregs of the NL. They went 6-3. and three. They won, you know, as Bryce Harper said, just keep winning series. They just kept winning series, and they lost ground to the Mets over that same time period. Yes, sequencing matters to our sort of, like, how we feel about the Mets' last ten games. But they're still five and a half up. The Nats head to St. Louis. The Mets get the Phillies at home, and you got to take care of business. But the clock is ticking, and the clock is like the old sort of like the football cliche. The clock is now the enemy of the Nationals. Well, scheduling advantages on our side, so... <clears throat> yeah, I looked at it today. They play, like... Phillies twice, Marlins twice, something Braves silly. Braves twice. Maybe we'll a bigger tire fire than any of them at this point. <laughs> Cincinnati is no good. I think they have four with Cincinnati. I mean, look, we're Mets fans. We know there may soon be reason to panic. 
I just don't think there's reason to panic yet. At no, least, if you're going to panic, at least wait until the National Series next weekend. Right. We've literally we won seven games in a row before that. Yes. So you lose two. Okay. It happens. So that was the news segment for this week, or this episode. Mm. We kept it short, <laughs> under 10 minutes, because we have 17 emails. Before we answer your 17 emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 136. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Find us on the internet, AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Amazing Avenue. Join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app, download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com, which I don't think I need to remind you. You all know the address, apparently. <laughs> so the Mets are in a pennant race. There are meaningful games in September on the horizon. You had a lot of questions for us this week. Not much overlap in these 17 emails. But we will get right to what is on the minds of our listeners. Obscure short-season prospect questions. Because, of course, there are. It's from Tom. Kick things off. Greetings podcast. Outside of his decent stat line, a bad thing to scout at his level, I realize, an 80-grade name and being born on Christmas. What can you tell me about Nabil Krismat? Regards, Tom. So usually when we get these questions, Steve, like, you know, Jeffrey Deaz or whatever, I haven't seen the guy. It's, um, you know, it's, it was John Mora last year when I think he was still in the GCL. I have actually seen Nabil Krismat. I did see him in Kingsport. I talked to a scout about him because he came up. Uh, yeah, sure, he's worth keeping an eye on. Uh, he's maxed out physically. It's a below-average fastball, but he's got a really... For, you know, not even for that level. It's a good change-up. And there's some feel for the breaking ball there. You know, that's a guy that pitches in a double-A pen. At least. Uh, the scout liked him more than me. Threw like a seventh-inning grade on him. Um, when I mentioned that on Twitter, his family found it and wasn't thrilled with that report, though they were polite about it, which is, I guess, all I can really ask. I'm not going to kill a dude for defending a family member. But I think for, like, context, that's a that's a serious grade for me. And for a scout to throw a major league grade and do a dude at that level is pretty damn rare. Yeah, I mean, so, if you're... He's, you know, particularly young, he's got a lot of ahead of him, and if someone is saying, like, hey, he could be a major leaguer, that's pretty good, given the amount of washouts, dropouts, everything in the history of, you know, minor league baseball. So I went back and looked, Steve, took the 2010 Kingsport <coughs> team for context. I thought this would be a better example than it was. It's actually a pretty good team from, like, a prospect standpoint. So there were 42 players that played for the 2010 Kingsport Mets, and 11 made double-A. So roughly one in four, uh, including Travis Osgo, who played one game at Kingsport that year. But whatever. 
I couldn't remember if he had... I, I was trying to rack my brain if he had made it to double A or not, which he did. I think I was confusing him in my head with uh, Stefan Welch, who mm. also made double A, though not for the Mets. Um, but the list, in case for some reason you're wondering, uh, but I'll give you an idea of even like the guys that make double A aren't really necessarily even good double A players. But Albert Cordero, Travis Oska, Adelon Rodriguez, Nelfi Zapata, TJ Chisholm, Jeff Walters, Josh Edgen, Jacob deGrom, Gonzalez Hermen, Adam Kalarik, and Chase Hutchinson. So of those 42, three made the majors. Uh, German, Herman, Edgen, and deGrom. I guess Walter still has a shot. Um, but if, you know, Nabil Kismet turns into a, a Josh Edgen or Gonzalez Herman, that's a, that's a pretty good outcome. Yeah, it's a, it's a victory. You make the major leagues, it's a victory. Absolutely. I thought that might have been a bit like a out of the out of normal good year, so I went back to 2009 just to check. And that was 9 of 41, so roughly about the same A-double-A. Only one made the majors, Daryl Siciliani. So that's what your, that's your like, survey of rookie ball. That's what you see. And I like that 2015 Kingsport team a lot. You know, I have four guys who probably make my top 25 list. I guess you want to count Ali Sanchez now, too, since he just got promoted. That's a fifth. It's a strong team. Yeah. But, you know, it's... Most of the time, you're right. It's just not... You know, it's uh, Zachary Von Tersch, Brandon Brown, guys like that. Even the guys that hit a ton in, in Kingsport don't necessarily make double A. You know, it's not, it's like, I think I've, I said before on the podcast, um, you know, half jokingly, it's not even really real baseball a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, things like, you know, there's no relievers on the lineup card. Happens. Four, a 4-0 perfect game going into the ninth turns into an 8-7 game in extra innings. We've all been there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Weird things happen. You know. For example, that 2010 team, Justin Schaefer, in 142 games, hit 333, 393, 444. Now that's a prospect. Yeah. <laughs> he played so good he got promoted to uh, Brooklyn for the end of the season. Hit 227, 271, 273. Pa, he might have gotten hurt. He only popped up for eight games in the Gulf Coast League the next year. Yeah, that's not the best example. What could have been? UC Davis, 34th round pick. Javier Rodriguez hit 319, 353, 513 there. Never got out of A-ball. Mm. And he was like a second round pick. So I can't, I don't. Uh, Nobody's in the Chris match should be angry. No, I liked him. Yeah. <laughs> so as we know, as as Amazing Avenue commenters will tell you, I even hate the guys I like. Apparently. You just hard to please. I am. Our next email is from Jimmy. Is it pronounced Carpio or Carpio? So I can understand why Jimmy is confused, because I've pronounced it both ways. It is Luis Carpio. Second syllable is accented in both surname and first name. That is awkward to pronounce, so I will probably continue to pronounce it in multiple ways, even though I know it is Luis Carpio. Now I should just dispose of the question now, because we have 15 more to go, Steve. But since we're here, 
and somebody asked about Luis Carpio. So I did the farm report this week, covering for your vacation. And I mentioned, under Luis Carpio, that I thought he had a better case for being the number one prospect in the system this offseason than some of the guys who might get bandied about as potential number ones in the system. And there's a few, I think. We assume no mats because of service time. Depending on whether you want to use uh, rookie eligibility rules or uh, whether you're like BA and you only use innings and not days of service time. But whatever. Um, we're Actually, this is one of the topics at Pitch Talk, so I don't want to scoop myself. Oh, don't do it then. I don't, but I'm just saying... You're going to hear names like Ahmed Rosario, Gavin Cicchini, Brandon Nimmo, and Dominic Smith. I think is the number one prospect in the system from various sources this offseason, national and otherwise. And I'm just saying that I think Luis Carpio is a better prospect than several of them. I'll explain more at Pitch Talks, which you'll have to buy tickets to. Or just listen. I mean, we're going to put up as a podcast. but Our next email is from Hank. Dear Mr. Paternostro and platonic partner, there's a void in the seventh inning that has reverberated throughout the pen since the departure of Mejia and Parnell pitching well but then becoming ineffective. Who in the minors... Yeah, the order there is a little off, but that's fine, whatever. Who in the minors do you think could acclimate to that role, whether they are currently a starter or in the pen now? Who do you think is going to definitely get called up and who is a dark horse candidate who can make an immediate act, impact in the pen? Yes, we've entered our, uh, our bullpen triptych segment of the emails. <laughs> Lastly, one guy who I think should get a September call-up is Jeff Walters. He's a 29-to-6 strikeout-to-walk ratio in 24 innings with a 259 ERA. I realize only half these innings have come in double-A, and he's just seen triple-A this season. But he was a triple-A closer before Tommy John surgery and pitched very well in that role. He's talking about his stuff, command, and if you believe he will and should get a shot in September. So I don't... We've talked about the bullpen a lot, and I understand why the bullpen's been shaky. Past Clifford and Familia, but I don't have any new names here. And they seem inclined to wait out the roster expansion in roughly 36 hours. Um, and there's an upcoming 40-man crunch, so I don't know if they find a spot for Josh Smoker or whatever. But um, also Addison Reed. That's hopefully solved the seventh inning problem. He's hoping. Here is hoping. As far as Walters go, hey, another guy I saw this year on rehab in the GCL for whatever that is worth. The funny thing, of course, he like comes out and just looks like a man among boys. Well, yeah. He's like the one sixth grader with a beard kind of thing going for him. <laughs> uh, the fastball was 91 to 93, which is down a tick uh, from when I saw him in AA two years ago. But the command seemed mostly back. He was spotting it. against one inning rehab. Read into that what you will. Struggled a bit with the feel for the slider. And he's been good at AA, but we knew that already. Again, you can just look back at his 2013 season. And we're still only, at this point, what, 15-ish months from his surgery? I don't think there's a reason to rush him here. Um, we'll see if he gets a shot in this offseason. Maybe he goes to winter ball. Maybe he pitches in the fall league. I think he announced the fall league rosters yet. I'm usually, like, half paying attention for that kind of thing. Uh, again, I don't know. Oh, yeah, because he's been on vacation all week. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but uh, he'll get he'll get chances. It's a live arm, and I think they like him, so... Our next email, continuing with the bullpen theme, is from Tom. It seems pretty clear that O'Flaherty isn't getting, going to be getting any big postseason outs at this point. 
So what's the downside to shooting him into the sun and giving Smoker a shot? You need to add him to the 40 this offseason anyway, right? So let's see what we have. Seems like a lot of potential upside and very little downside. What am I missing? So let me get this out of the way. I've been a Josh Smoker advocate on the podcast. But, you know, he's not a slam dunk Major League arm. This is his first taste of double-A. Um, the stuff is nice, but there's some, you know, we've seen the sketchy command big fastball lefty before. We had mm. the Rob Car- Rob Carson experience. Now, I saw both as relievers. I saw Carson as a starter, too. I think Smoker is better as a reliever than Carson is, but that's the risk of the command profile. But you gotta add, you're right, you have to add him for Rule 5, MILB, free agent purposes, and he's a fucking lefty with a borderline 80 fastball. You keep that guy around. They've just been so weirdly conservative with their 40-man roster. Like, they've got a big Rule 5 class this year. You know, even the guy, you know, they, they would have had to add Cook and Diaz, they probably weren't going to. But they're still, the guys they are going to have to add is fairly large. They have a few guys coming off the 60, and Edgen and uh, Wheeler. But, so, I mean, push comes to shove when it comes to November. They're going to have to DFA guys like Manel, Mono, Siciliani to find spots for those guys. Yeah. So you might as well just do it now. Yeah, no, I see. No reason not to. I mean, Give it a shot. You know, maybe, it, maybe you catch lightning in a bottle. Get him up before the first. You're going to need a lefty for the pen. You know, we have a question about the uh, playoff pitching staff later in the show. We can address that idea there, too. But you might as well give him a shot. He throws 95-98 on the left side. Good thing to have. That's that. Those guys don't grow on trees. Uh, okay. I made notes to myself of what each of these emails are, but I didn't actually put down the... I'm not doing it in order. And... The person... Nope, that's a different email. What am I looking at? Nope, that's later in the show. This one? Nope, that's later in the show. (laughs) Yes, okay, it's from Scott. Jeff and co-hosts. First off, is this team really playing this well, or am I still drunk from drowning my sorrows from watching Eric Campbell back clean up and play left field? <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty good to me. 14 games over 500. Yep. Anyway, I have a few quick hitters for you. Do you think TC will continue to play a rotation at various spots, keep that rotation going into the playoffs if we make it? We'll take that one first then, Scott. Um, when Duda is healthy... And I was assured he would be back in the minimum, which I believe is like eight days from now, and he hasn't swung a bat yet. No. But the Mets assured me that it was no big deal, and he would be back in the minimum. But when Duda is healthy, I think you go right Flores, Murph, Duda across the infield. You know, there's arguments for sitting Duda and Murphy against lefties, but it's just it's not going to happen, I don't think. TC is going to play his guys. You know, I could I, I could see that happening in the outfield where Conforto starts against righties and Ligaris starts against lefties, and that seems reasonable. Um, you know, there's no reason. I mean, the excuse is going to be, well, Conforto's a rookie, so he doesn't really hasn't earned his spot yet. But you know, Ligaris is very good against left-handed pitching. 
and can play center field. So that seems reasonable. You know, Conforto's been protected so far, seeing pretty much right-handers exclusively. But again, put your best nine out there, and I think uh, you can play around with hand. I mean, by that logic, you should probably sit Granderson too. But again, probably not going to happen because Conforto's a rookie, so that's going to be Terry's excuse for doing what he probably should do in the infield as well. I just can't see, uh, you know, Juan Uribe getting a start at second for Murph in the playoffs, or Kadir starting at first for Duda against Kershaw, even if he probably should. Mm. I don't think Terry's going to do that. It's just really not in his DNA as a manager. That's the more likely of the two. Kadir for Duda? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Murph's just going to play every day. Yeah. And I can't blame him. Yeah, yeah well, I can't, you know, whatever. Who in the minors can we look for at some help? For some help in the pen, other than Smoker and Goodell, I'd include Black, but he seems like a mess down in Vegas. Again, we've, you know, see the last four weeks of podcasts. <laughs> and, you know, Addison Reed should settle things down. You know, just Matt's... The same Matt's is going to be a starter. Syndergaard's going to be a starter. Red's <laughs> going to be a... They can't all these guys starting. But if one of Matt's or Syndergaard goes to the pen in September at some point... That's a huge difference. That gives you four reliable arms. That should be enough. Finally, any sort of under-the-radar bat you can think that might deserve a September call-up. That's all, guys. Thanks for the great podcast. P.S. Forgot how much fucking fun, meaningful August-September baseball can be. <laughs> so... You may not have heard of this guy, Steve. A little obscure. Mm-hmm. The Mets could use some team speed on the bases. You know, pinch runner, late inning defensive substitute, maybe a guy who can really run. Have you heard of Eric Young Jr.? Eric Young Jr. I have not. Yeah, yeah. That there's your under the radar bat. He's certainly under the radar. Our next email is from Christopher. Making good time. Hey guys, first off, great job on the podcast. I started listening at the beginning of the season. It's been great to hear some dudes who are just as concerned about Mets' high A prospect development as I am. Recently on a podcast, you discussed the excellent new splitter Familia has been throwing and spoke highly of his three-pitch mix. A 99-mile-an-hour sinker, 93-mile-an-hour splitter, and a nasty 90-mile-an-hour slider. Thinking it over, that sounds like the kind of mix that might play as a starter. Millie was a starter in the minors, and his secondary stuff is developing really well under Worthen's guidance. Is it possible the Mets could try him as a starter again? Do you think Millie would play as a 2-3 if they stretched him out? I know they've got a ton of starting pitching, but you never have enough, and it strikes me that good starters have a ton of value. Well, you'd be right there. He's got a starter's build, although we all know that doesn't mean anything, and he's throwing three excellent pitches right now. He could give you 200 innings, with a 3.5 ERA, 210 strikeouts, and a 1.15 whip as a start. Those are highly specific numbers, Christopher. <laughs> Let's just stick with 2-3. That's about right anyway. So, Would he not be a more valuable asset to the franchise than he is now, giving you 70-80 innings of top-end reliever production? Seems like relievers break down and lose value just as easily, if not more so, than starters do. So I don't see it being a huge injury risk to try to stretch him. They started using him as a starter in 2017, and it worked out, would he not be a decent rotation replacement for guys who might walk or get traded like Matt Harvey and Wheeler? I guess it's just a question of maximizing assets. 
Wouldn't it make more sense to maximize Familia's value as a starter as he approaches free agency and just develop a guy like Josh Smoker into a closer's role a year or two down the line? People are getting really excited about Josh Smoker. I mean, it's nice to have a guy like that, but yeah. I mean, a couple of, like, like two years ago, people were saying the same exact things about Black when we first traded for him, and that hasn't really worked out. I think two years before that, it was like Nick Carr, too. Yeah. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work, Chris. <coughs> so this was inevitable this email, I feel like. And look, I get it. You know, how many starters in the majors have 370-grade pitches? I am getting ahead of myself with the splitter, but have you seen the splitter? <laughs> it, is, it is baseball porn. I mean, it's like Kershaw, that's the list. But there's more to starting <coughs> than just stuff. And, you know, Familia's had issues repeating his mechanics forever. Um, so there's no guarantee... If you try to stretch him out for 200 innings, A, he's still throwing 99, 93, and 90 with those three pitches. That's a one-inning burst. You know, as a starter, he was more like 93 to 96. With a high 80 slider. You know, does he hold that into games? Is the command there multiple times through the lineup? But let's say he even turns into a three. Is that more valuable than being a a top-end closer? And I mean top-end. That's a, that's a debate we can have, certainly. But the Mets have starters. Uh, bullpen arms. Well, I mean, we can sort of look at the tenor of the emails this week and the topics in the show the last few weeks. And what it really comes down to is we know Familia can do this. He's had elbow issues in the past. You know, why? There's no good reason I can see to push it. The splitter can make him one of the three or four best closers in baseball. That's something we realistically think can happen. Once we start to imagine him as a starter, we're projecting a whole bunch of different things that have to happen for him to be as effective. Mm-hmm. You know, and as much as I, I, I don't like to use it, I guess for at least reference sake. Uh, his last two years... I just said say this year. So this year, 2015. As a reliever, he's been worth 2.4 wins by Baseball References War. In 63 innings. So he's on pace. Let's say he gets to a roughly 3-1 season. That's about what a number three starter is going to give you. And we're comparing apples to oranges to a certain extent. But there's no guarantee he gets there. This is what Familia is doing right now. And yes, he could get hurt. But I think moving him to the... I mean, he get hurt as a, as a reliever, certainly. But I think moving him, you know, back to the starting rotation, stretching him out, just carries its own risks beyond the performance risk. And I got Like, it's nice to have a lockdown closer in the ninth. Exactly. That's I know it's what... not very sabermetric-y to say that, but... Exactly. That's the biggest thing. If you want to go by, you know, the sabermetric book by war, yeah, making him into a starter could possibly make him more valuable by war. But he's taken to this role, and I don't want to say that he's, like, integral, you know, to the team in the role that he is in right now, but who else are you going to have close right now? And to baseball players, you know, psychologically or whatever, that's a big thing. 
knowing that you have a guy in the ninth that can shut the other team down one, two, three, and that's it. Look, it's not the greatest stat for this purpose. I mean, it's actually probably even worse than more on some level because a lot of it, it's very, very outcome-based. And the pitcher, you know, it's, it's situational-based, which the pitcher doesn't have any control over either. But, you know, if I just, let's see. Is it the proper minimum innings one? So all, including all starters and all relievers. Familia is 19th by uh, Fangraph's WPA stat, which is just win probability average uh, added, which just takes the Mets' chances of winning when he comes into the game minus the Mets' chances of winning when he leaves the game or when the game is over. Um, he's been almost identical to Jacob deGrom this year <laughs> in terms of how much he's impacted the Mets' winning games. Now again, it's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I want to get into it. Um, you know, he's in much higher leverage opportunities than Degrom, obviously, because he's coming in usually in one or two run games, where preventing the next run from scoring has a huge impact on whether or not the team wins. But you know, he is. Whether you believe all of that value is deriving directly from him, he is having an impact, a major impact, on this team winning games this year, in the role he's in right now. Exactly, and there's nobody that can be relied on really that's in the organization to replace him. If you did want to shift him into, you know, as a starting pitcher, Smoker, you know, people are high on him, but who knows? And other than him, you know, there's there's nobody in, you know, you know. Make Montero a closer, Verrett, you know, and Noah, and those are the most MLB-ready pitchers in the organization. Or you, you and, can go out on the market, but that's going to cost you money. Right. So I mean, he's in he's in a role that he's taken to, and you know, we don't need starting pitchers. We do need good relievers. We have completed our reliever bullpen triptych. Now we'll move on to our Wilmer Flores triptych. <laughs> it's a question from John. A question for your amazing podcast. With America's sweetheart Wilmer Flores looking like a strong possibility to take over second base next year for Murphy, has there been any internal conversation about Dilson Herrera returning to shortstop? I believe he came up through the pirate system in that position. Would this pairing be better defensively than Flores at short and Herrera at second? Oh, by the way, the loud snarling dog in the microphone on last week's pod nearly caused me heart failure. <laughs> Thanks for the entertaining and dangerous podcast. He signed at Dr. Moreau, which I assume is his handle on Amazing Avenue. I don't know if that person exists, because I try to avoid going into the comments at this point. Oh, yeah, that, that, that loud-styling dog is a 15-pound diabetic chihuahua, so <laughs> he's really not that intimidating. Dilson Herrera did not come up to the pirate system as a shortstop. This is a common misconception, because... Some sources listed him as a shortstop when the Mets traded for him back in 2013. That's when he was still shortstop Avenue. Right. Uh, he to me the Mets had him uh, played a little shortstop at St. Lucie. 
So let's put this to bed one more time. He doesn't have the armor and the actions for it. Nope. Uh, there's more, it's more, his defensive skill set is more athleticism than polish. And I do think the D at second base is eventually going to be fine. I'm really not really, you know, I think he'll be a fine defensive second baseman. He's very athletic. He's good body control. Good range. You just need a lot of different plus skills to play shortstop. And the arm's really short there. You know, he really has to be a second baseman because of the arm. And he really only played there with Pittsburgh. Um, and he might be a very good second baseman, so I wouldn't really worry about it. I don't know what they're going to do with Omar Flores this offseason. Just enjoy the ride. It's my main man, Wilmer Flores. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't think Wilmer's that good a second baseman either. I think the problem with Wilmer is it's like all the things that give him trouble at shortstop also give him trouble at second. Because well, it's I mean, like the, the arm's fine for shortstop. It's just everything else. And you still have to be able to do everything else at second. You can hide that he can't go to his left as well, basically. When you're playing the day after uh, Daniel Murphy, you look like an amazing second baseman. Yeah, I just it's you know we'll, we'll <laughs> deal with it when we when we get to it. Our next email is from David. He also has some quick hits too, but there is one more Flores one towards the end. So I did not lie to you about the triptych. Hello, Jeff and cohorts and consorts. Long time, first time, as they say. Do they? I mean, they do, but I've never been a particular fan of that little uh, cliche. I have a few questions and observations, but, but welcome to the long list of emailers, David. <laughs> <laughs> One, I'm curious as to why you guys haven't discussed the murder of Jack Leathersitch by the outlaw Wally Backman. Look, I know that ligament tears happen over time, and you don't really just kill an elbow in one outing. Letting a guy throw twice as many pitches as he has in any outing all year while giving up dingers and walks galore is really dumb. I've always liked Wally, and if Collins was fired, I wouldn't have objected to giving him a shot, if for no other reason than entertainment value, but this, for me, disqualifies him from a big league job. Thoughts. So, we haven't really gotten into it on the pod, because, I mean, we all know what happened, and anything additional I could add to the conversation, I don't really have it on the record. So, sorry. But I will say that the, there's sort of the idea I see propagated from time to time that, you know, Wally Backman is only doing what the front office wants him to. You know, he, he served, you know, it's, he's just, if he was doing anything really untoward, whether it's, you know, using Leather Stitch the way he did, or batting, batting Brandon Nimmo ninth, or not playing Cesar Pueyo last year, that, you know, they would get a phone call and they'd put an end to that. Um, you know, it's it doesn't really work that way. For one thing, he has a pretty good relationship with Jeff Wilpon. So he, he gets a little bit more free reign, probably, than some of your other minor league managers. And even beyond that, it's not like he's talking to Sandy Alderson and Paul D. Podesta that much. <laughs> you know, like any other corporate job, stuff filters up. You know, and Sandy really doesn't need a daily report on you know, how Daryl Ciliani and Brandon Allen are doing. Managers do usually debrief after games, but it's more likely to be with like a field coordinator or you know a player dev manager like Ian Levin or Dick Scott. You know, so he'll talk to one of those guys. He's not talking to Paul D. Podesta every day. Now they don't check in, but I, I just it would. I know was there a conversation about what happened with Jack Leatherstitch? Probably, 
but there's only so much micromanaging these guys are going to do. And that's all I can say, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing to add that's been, that hasn't already been discussed at Nauseam. It's, it is what it is. Wasn't the best use of Leather Sitch, given the situation, and it's unfortunate that he hurt himself. You can't fully blame Wally, and it's just, it's not good. Two, I love how on the, po- the podcast on July 10th, a fairly boring week, runs two and a half hours, and the one for the trade deadline, craziest trade deadline in Mets history, came in at almost an hour or less. It's why you guys are the best. This also had some one way to look at it, I suppose. This also <laughs> made me imagine if you guys did the podcast in 1977 during the Midnight Massacre, I picture nothing but sobbing, drinking, and cries of why. I believe the one being referred to here is the one where I sort of stapled on our draft recap with Alex. So it was really kind of two podcasts in one. But at this point, I honestly have no idea how long a podcast will be when I start it. I thought this one was going to be really long, but we're making pretty good time. I will say generally, when I have better notes and I'm more organized, like I am theoretically for this one, they're usually shorter. But this may surprise you, Steve, and listeners. I have a tendency to wander off my notes a lot. Really? Yeah, whatever I start with, it may not actually end up... uh, in the podcast, and I may just start talking about other things. Three, as always, as I've always loved Jeff's description of Wilmer Flores' love of the dick-high fastball, I made you a Wilmer meme. <laughs> Enjoy. Love the podcast. Keep the good work and slightly intoxicated work. David Love. P.S. Yes, it's my real name. He did include a uh, dick-high fastball meme with Wilmer Flores swinging at a dick-high fastball. I'm a little disappointed by the matchup with Joe Kelly. I thought, Wilmer, I thought Wilmer would do more, uh, since wow. Dick High Fastball is the best pitch of uh, Joe Kelly's reputed four-plus pitches. <laughs> I feel like, like just like MLB 2K16, you know, next year, it'll be a pitch, you know, fastball, curveball, Dick High Fastball. You know, I've gotten, I could have gotten credit for the phrase, or the pop, the popularizing of the phrase. But the only reason I started doing it, and it's an old scout thing, it's like scouts say it all the time, but I, I, I kept referring to them as thigh-high fastballs. That's just not comical enough. Oh, the prospect hate man yelled at me and said, you know, it's dick-high fastball. So then I just kept using dick-high fastball every single time to try and annoy him, and it just sort of took off from there. Speaking of him, when is he coming on the podcast? That's something that I guess the commenters are demanding? They are. We'll see, uh... I'll th- oh, so I'll make this promise. I've been joking about uh, joking with him in DMs recently that uh, we're in range for when we're Flores getting like a troll 10th place MVP vote because of like clutch hitting down the stretch or whatever. If that happens, if Wilmer Flores gets an MVP vote from any writer this year, I will have the prospect hate man. I will demand the prospect hate man come on the podcast to talk about it with, with me. Well, yeah. in that case, I hope Adam Rubin is listening. Eh, it won't be Rubin. He would He would do that. Uh, <laughs> if you believe the rumors that it's his last year on the beat, I could see him going out with a bang, assuming he has the NL MVP vote. Because it is uh, fairly randomized. 
We have one more, one more Flores question. It's from Ollie. Or Oli. I don't think we still establish which it is. Hey guys, love the show. Obviously I'm enjoying raking all summer and scoring so many runs. So the 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 subject line of this email was the summer raking. So when it started with like, hey guys, love the show, I assumed he was like raking during the summer and listening to it. I don't know where he would live. There, there would be like deciduous trees shedding their leaves in the middle of the summer, but <laughs> it's vaguely Scandinavian. And I can't say, despite my, you know, IFK Gothenburg fandom, yeah, I was particularly just about good grasp about the weather patterns or, or the uh, flora in the Scandinavian countries. Some people, after they mow their lawns, they leave like the grass oh, like clippings the grass all clippings over the place. For, like, yeah. mulch. Yeah, okay, I can see that. You could rake those. Nice, nice recovery. Thanks for bailing me out there. Yep, yep, anytime. But he's talking about the hitting. The Mets have been doing recently. Ah, well, that makes which sense. Which is so good, it often colloquially gets referred to by baseball fans and baseball media as raking. But am I crazy to be mildly concerned about us having a left side of the infield and a potential game one that has Flores and right? Like, as much as they add offense, can you really see us rolling like that against Kershaw or Bumgarner? Um, yes. That's yeah. probably what'll happen. Right hits lefties very well. So does Flores. There I mean, you go. Ollie, of course, referring to the defense, which is a team-wide problem right now. It's probably not fair to only single out Flores and right, but yeah, you can be concerned. My main man, Wilmer Flores, is still not a good shortstop at all. <laughs> and Wright's looked shaky at third since he's been back. Well, I was at the game on Thursday at Philly, the last game that went into extra innings, and it was crazy. But it seemed like for the first couple, like the first three, four innings, like every single ground ball went to Wright. And I think, you know, he fielded everything cleanly. I mean, he looked, he looked fine in a one-game sample, so... Right, and I do think as he's gotten more reps at games be under his belt, it has improved. Yeah. Even, like, game over game. So there's reason to hope that he'll get back somewhere close to what he was as a defender. I I think, you know, one of the issues he's going to run into is on his rehab, on his baseball activities, you know, he had to figure out a swing, and he said as much, that works with his back condition. That's not going to aggravate it. You can do that. You can take dry swings. You can take BP. You know, you can gear, you can find that gear. You can find that body position. When you're in the infield, you can't simulate all the plays you might have to make. You just can't. You can take infield, which he couldn't even really do because he's talked about how he's had to stretch for an hour before games. So that limits his ability to take infield. And you just can't simulate all the plays you're going to have to make during a game and how they will feel to you. We're in kind of an uncharted territory here. Um, so we'll have to figure that out. But it's looked, looked better. I'm not super concerned. I mean, I'm concerned in a short series. You know, it's the old sort of all the hoary playoff cliches come out now. You got low scoring games, it's cold weather, better pitching. You know, those that ability to turn balls into play, into outs, is very important. And the Mets haven't been great at it recently. They'll make, they'll make two. <clears throat> I mean, it's not my... I have other concerns. You know, whatever happens, happens. So you're not yeah. going to not... There's like, what are you going to start? I guess Tejada. Tejada and Uribe. Yeah, it's just not, you know... It's... I can see the case for Tejada just based on, like, you know, better defense for the, you know, for I an think entire again, game. I you'll see Tejada starting with, like, John Neese pitches game three or whatever. Yeah. 
But I mean, Rebe or or Kelly Johnson or whoever can yeah, play third no. base over right. You really can't make much of an argument. Yeah, no, you gotta roll with what you got, and that's what they got. And like the defense kills them. It's we we can't sit here and act surprised, certainly. But hey, though, at least they made the playoffs then. Hey, exactly. Glass half full. Yeah. We now have a duo of Matt Harvey emails. First one is from Mike. First of all, that dog collar jingling kind of jarred me at my desk. Trying to figure out if it was you guys or a dog in my garage. I heard it barking and realized it was your dog. <laughs> Too funny. Anyway, I just heard your argument about Harvey and being willing to risk injury. I would not push him too hard on purpose because you're screwing with a guy's career. That being said, you can sure ask him what he wants to do, and I guarantee he wants the ball. Scott Boris may not want that, but Harvey would. Just my two cents. Um, so yeah, on some level, this does get back to sort of the principal agent discussion we had around Parnell. Sort of how hard do you want to push Harvey coming off surgery. But there's, I think there's a few important distinctions here. For starters, Harvey looks fine. He has pitched very well this season and very well lately. That was sort of my counter-argument against needing to skip him against Colorado. He looks okay. He doesn't look fatigued. There's no indication from what we've seen. And again, we are on the outside looking in. But I have seen no indication, either in his stuff or in his results, that he needed to be skipped other than an innings limit that really has no medical or scientific basis. No, I mean the his uh, strikeout rate has gone like slightly down as compared to the beginning of the year. But there was an article like a month or or a month and a half ago, whatever that you know he he said he was or whoever it was. I didn't actually <laughs> read it, <laughs> but you know they were purposely trying to go for more ground ball outs to get faster innings to give him more time on the mound. So I mean it's not even like the strikeout strikeout rate going down is Pitching a product of fatigue. Contact. Exactly. And it's it, he's still striking out enough dudes. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's not fine. a big concern. No. Um, and again, like I said, I'm not advocating starting him on short rest. But he's two years away from the surgery, he can take the ball every fifth day. Yeah, if he's still having lingering effects from the surgery, then there's a right. deeper rooted problem here. Bobby Parnell. And, you know, the Mets have an interest in keeping Harvey healthy past 2015. They don't really have with Parnell because he's a free agent. You know, so it's not really... There's not that conflict with Harvey. Uh, so it just doesn't make any sense to me why they'd ramp him down. I mean, pitchers get hurt, and we really don't know how to prevent it. The best advice I have is don't throw 95 plus. But he does, and here we are. Yeah. You know, the Boris Harvey dynamic is interesting because, you know, I've heard he wanted even lower innings limit on Harvey this year. Which, again, is not surprising because his interest lies even further down the road than the Mets. Exactly. He's looking at that next free agent deal, which he should be. That's his job. Yeah, it's it's an, it's a, right. it's an Everybody, interesting... Everybody is representing their own interests fairly well with Harvey. I just don't think the Mets are going about it the right way. Right. It's an interesting like matrix of 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 interests and results. But yes, I do agree with Mike that obviously Harvey wants the ball every fifth day. Probably more than that. You take it, you know, he's just that's the way he's wired. Next email is from Jeff. Hey guys, I know the first rule of playoffs, you don't talk about playoffs. 
But I have a hypothetical question for you. I think we can all agree that it's stupid to skip a Matt Harvey start down the stretch in a playoff race because the difference between Matt Harvey's arms staying attached to his body next year or not will not come down to an extra six-inning start in September. However, I think we can also agree that if a playoff spot is all locked up, that it's nice in the final week of the season to give guys rest in order to help them recover after a long season and also to set up the pitching rotation for the first playoff series. So my hypothetical question for you is this. Let's say that we hit the final week of the season, and God willing, we've already clinched the NL East, but we're a game behind the Dodgers for the second spot in the NL. Would you throw our starters out there for the sake of gunning for home at field advantage in the NLDS? Or would you rather throw Logan Verrett out there and skip Matt Harvey because you value the rest more than home field potential game seven of the NLDS? It'd be game five, but I get your point, Jeff. So, it's sort of address Jeff's first sentence. I you know I've said repeatedly on the show, like, I don't believe in jinxes. But it does seem odd on August 30th. And again, this is sort of, I think, speaks to the recent trials and tribulations of being a Mets fan. That We're not only talking about winning the division, Steve. We're talking by, about winning it by enough that they can rest starters the last week of the season. Well, we're not going to lose another game, remember? You know, yeah, well, I mean, I've... We've talked sort of, yeah, I know, we've talked about playoff rotations and, you know, oh, you know, who even, like, I mean, everything's always sort of abstract hypotheticals. We're talking about 2015 off-season stuff at times, which, you know, we don't even know what that's going to look like. It's like we don't know what October is going to look like, really, but we talk about it. It just feels different. And look, these, like, I'm going to warn you, these podcasts may be hella awkward to revisit in a month if things go bad. Yeah... But, I mean, I've said some things before on the podcast that were completely stupid a month later. See my uh, ranting at the front office for not trading Marlon Byrd by the July 31st trade deadline two years ago. The chance we take. So we'll answer this question. Um, I'm probably not specifically concerned with getting home field advantage. I think... Though, the schedule's very different now. So you're not really worried about setting up the rotation for the playoffs. They get uh, four full days in between the last game with the Nats and a theoretical NLDS game one. Um, So what you do if you skip those guys the last week, or even the last weekend, you end up with a really long break for your pitchers. It might be worth it, hypothetically, to treat it like the last week of spring training and have your guys, you know, just throw 60, 75 pitches to stay sharp. Though I wouldn't be surprised if the Mets do skip at least Harvey, if not Syndergaard. Just keep that innings total nice and shiny. It is. Innings limits are sort of the we tried of pitcher health. (laughs) They are. It's like, is this guy hurt? No. Then he can pitch. Then someday he may be hurt. Like I said, don't abuse them. But, you know, if, if Harvey makes his last start the middle of the week, you know, he gets... You really want him pitching on, like, 13 days off? Yeah, it's a little excessive. It, it's... It, they just, you, you want it to be as close to replicating their routine and everything else that they had during the season. The playoffs are a little different, and, you know, weird things can happen if one team wins a series quickly and whatever else, and you deal with that when it comes. 
But as far as all you can really do is control the first series. And if they are, are clinched, I would say, you know, yeah, throw him out there. At least keep him sharp. Let him go through his normal routine. That last week. Even if you're only going to throw him four or five innings. In a game that doesn't matter. So, yeah, you know, if it, if it keeps him sharp, that's the most important yeah. thing. And I think you want home field advantage, sure. But I don't think you can also treat the last week of the season like a do or die. If the Dodgers and or Giants are close to the Mets in record. I just... I think it's, you know, it's a tough... It's a tough balance to strike. It's why we're not Major League Managers. One of the reasons. <laughs> there may be others. Our next email is from one of our many Michaels. We've already had one Michael. I, I, the Michael, I almost... Like, as of this, we was going to stop saying... Our many Michaels. We haven't had as many Michaels email us recently. We had three Michaels, so I can once again say... One of our many Michaels. This email is from Michael. Hello, hosts. I am continue to be troubled by this field staff's handling of our young pitchers. There's no reason why DeGrom was made to throw 83 pitches in two and two-thirds innings last night. When your pitcher is around 60 pitches after two innings and he walks a leadoff man in the third, I'm sorry, that mop-up guy needs to be warming up. Instead, Terry waits 15 pitches and three runs later to finally get Gil Martin warmed up. That's nutty. Those are high-stress innings that give me nightmares. Also, Matz's injury may have resulted from his usage as well. He was limited to 85 pitches for a month and a half in Vegas in an effort to preserve him for the stretch. Yet with a four-run lead, Terry and Dan let him pitch 110 pitches, 25 more than he'd been throwing. I, for one, was not surprised when he complained of discomfort shortly thereafter. Even Ron and Gary were very critical of Terry's handling there. Lastly, everyone is killing Wally for the Leatherstead situation. Meanwhile, last year versus the Angels, coaching staff had Familia pitch 53 pitches in two consecutive innings as well. Just because he didn't get hurt doesn't make it any less egregious. I feel like this press corps let Terry get away with a lot of these issues because he jokes around with them. Terry could kill the Bat Boy and no one would read about it because he makes Jared Diamond and Anthony DeCarmo giggle. Curious for your thoughts, Mike. <laughs> I'm curious how you picked out Jared and Anthony. I know they're, uh, what are they, work husbands per Mark Carrig. Um... I will get back to one of our other many Michael's points, which is that pitchers want the ball. And, you know, DeGrom had a bad hamburger, and legit food poisoning can take, like, 24 hours to manifest, so it's just bad timing. Um, Remember the last time when DeGrom had a bad start, like, three months ago, and everyone's all panicky? I do. We had a podcast segment about it. We did, yeah. Um, And he looked pretty good on Saturday. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, they're not going to drop 16 every game, although it did seem like it for a while there. So you do have to be a little more proactive, but you can go too far in the other direction. You know, look at Matt Harvey against the uh, Red Sox on Friday with a short bullpen. They could have easily rolled him out there for the seventh. Like I said, I don't envy the balance this field staff has to strike. And I, you know, I what I'm I'm just an armchair gaffer here, basically. I don't I can't do much more than that. But you know, it's a results oriented business and. Going on several years now, when it comes to this kind of stuff, sure doesn't seem like Terry Collins has been pushing the right buttons. Nah. Nah. I don't know. I do think the familiar thing's not fair. That's, you know, that was the deep extra inning games, I recall. It's like the 13th and 14th inning. And sometimes you have to stretch a guy there. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, like, like. You know, is it optimal that you would have to have a guy that's struggling early pitch more, you know, stressful p- 
hitches and more stressful innings than necessary? No, it's not optimal. But like at the broader picture, you can't have your bullpen for like you know seven innings. Yeah, and stuff like that doesn't happen more than a few times a year usually. But I guess it's we might be skewed because it seems like recent Mets teams have played a lot of long extra inning games. Yeah. I mean, I would suggest you maybe you don't bring back the guy on the next day after you threw multiple innings in an extra inning game. <clears throat> Carlos Torres. Yep. Look, it's, it's, I don't know. It's like, I can't deal with Twitter arguing about whether Terry Collins is a good manager. I just don't care. It just doesn't, it doesn't... It's like a beaten horse at this point. It like, just 90- does, look, he's going to be the manager for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, 90% of managers are going to do more or less the same thing. It's just, um, I, I personally have moved past the point of getting angry about common managerial, you know, mistakes or, or errors or whatever you want to call it. It just is what it is. Next email is from Rob. Gentlemen, he has three questions. Please put together a Mets package for Yasio Puig for a trade to be executed this offseason. So it's still starts with your Syndergaard or Mats. Yeah. I'm not saying don't do it, but it still starts with Syndergaard or Mats. There is, Steve, however, another Cuban outfielder that will only cost money. Granted, a lot more money. We have an email about that, too, later in the show. Such a player exists. Yeah. Also, what impact do you see the Ashley Madison hack having on the Mets' postseason chances? So, baseball players travel a lot. They're on their phone a lot. Um, They're going to tend to be more mobile and mobile (laughs) app savvy. That's very true, especially the younger players. I'm going to say that if something were to come, it's going to be Tinder. Let's, let's Let's be honest here. There's already, I feel like, stories kicking around Deadspin over the last few years of some baseball player awkwardly trying to hit on some lady on Tinder. I'm actually just going to Google search this right now. Oh, here's uh, Will Nieves' Tinder profile. (laughs) Potentially. Someone no, spotted I mean, a Tinder user on Tuesday night using the photo of Philly's backup catcher Will Nieves and his daughter. Why would you use your daughter in a picture I on your Twinder? T- oh. <laughs> Look, I didn't say baseball players would be good at using Tinder. I just said it'd be more likely they would use Tinder than Ashley Madison. Which seems like it was just a gigantic scam anyway. Yeah, I read an article like literally like 0.01% of women actually use the site or something like that. Also, baseball players sad. don't need to use hookup apps as a general rule. No, they That's just go true the, since, like, baseball existed for the most part. Uh, just go the A-Rod route of putting your number on the ball and throwing oh, yeah, it to the hot women in the front. You always do that. <laughs> I feel if anyone, though, of all baseball players, if he was still on the team, Valdespin would have... Uh, oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Finally, and I will warn you ahead of time, the next four minutes or so of the podcast may contain pro wrestling content, listeners. Do you condone the actions of celebrity Mets fan John Stewart at SummerSlam? Yours in the fight, Rob. All right, so this is actually national pop culture news. 
Steve. It is. It not is not wrestling talk. So take that, everyone who's been critical of having wrestling questions. Uh, in case you missed it, John Stewart was asked to host SummerSlam. Um, after leaving the Daily Show. Now, as I, as I recall, even before that, he had had some sort of like weird feud with Seth Rollins going on. Right, they I don't were, remember they what... They were posting YouTube videos back and forth or something. I don't remember the exact... Uh... Yeah, I don't remember what caused it, but like John Stewart mentioned, Seth Rollins on The Daily Show, and then Seth Rollins responded to it on like you know a YouTube thing on the WWE channel. Mm-hmm. And I want to say John Stewart hosted Raw at some point. That might be accurate. Yeah. It's just weird. And of course, like if you, in case you missed it, he turned on uh, John Cena, hit him with a chair... And let Seth Rollins retain his his WWE title. So of course it's like the most predictable heel turn ever. He was feuding with Seth Rollins and then helped out Seth Rollins. I didn't actually watch Raw to see what his uh, reasoning was. I didn't care. Oh, it was actually very good. Okay, go for it. Uh, I mean, I didn't watch it either, but I read recaps afterwards. Originally, I thought like, oh, geez, that was stupid. He turned on him, whatever. But uh, John Stewart's reasoning was apparently that. Growing up as a kid, he enjoyed wrestling, and to him, Ric Flair is the ultimate champion. So he can't bear to see John Cena, you know, beat Ric Flair. Oh, that's actually really good. Right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that makes more sense than any WWE storyline in the last year. <laughs> exactly. So he said, you know, he was in a position to do something about it, and he wasn't gonna, you know, he wasn't gonna miss that opportunity. That's amazing. That's great. It, it really is. Yeah. Props to whoever sense. whoever came up with that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think it's like. I think he is actually just a legit wrestling fan. Like, he's been in the crowd before. We should get him on the podcast. A sure. wrestling fan, a Mets fan. Jeez. Absolutely. I actually Forget I, the used to know, I used to know a writer there, and I was going to reach out, but he's not, he wasn't on the show when I reached out. Mm. So, oh well. John, if you're listening, <laughs> come on. The, uh, it's podcast at AmazingAvenueAudio.com. What if John Stewart is like a troll on the, on the site? Mm-hmm. Imagine that. He's low house, serious. <laughs> Love the Mets. Love, Love the Mets. Um, and it is like a like a weird thing to like see John Stewart turning on John Cena on a wrestling pay per view. But you know, it's I was saying, if the WWE invited me to do that, I would do it. Oh, of course. It's just like it, it's it's weird because uh, I can speak a little bit. It's like you get a weird adrenaline rush from wrestling and being around wrestling. Um, I don't know if the listeners out there know that, but I was part of a pro wrestling group in college. We actually like put on shows and stuff. What was your wrestling name? I'm, I couldn't divulge that. I will say I had my own <laughs> wrestling mask made up by uh, HighSpots.com, though. Mm. I had a custom mask made up. It's really just sort of like a La Parca ripoff mask. Still. Yeah. It doesn't look exactly like the La Parca mask, but you can see that it was obviously uh, influenced by that. The only problem was they put a little too much material in the hood. So it occasionally it would like poof up, so it kind of looks like a clan hood, <laughs> which was a little bit awkward. I could see how that would be awkward, <laughs> especially at like you know one of the most like liberal colleges in the country. Though no one ever really made a note of it, it wasn't like super obvious. I just happened to notice it. Um, but it's like fun. Like you know, I've been hit with a chair. You you get like a weird rush from it. It's also claim I have like chronic neck, back, and hip issues, but. It has nothing to do with the chair. No, absolutely not. Everything else, just the poor, poorly taken back bumps, probably. But I get the appeal. 
Well, it's like anything. I mean, it's like being on stage. You know, yeah. you get an adrenaline rush from being on stage, and that's just a very physical thing. But it happens to be on stage, and we, it's fun. We would get else. like for like our bigger shows, we would get a couple hundred college students there, and they get into it weirdly. Yeah. I mean, there was some probably some level of ironic attachment for everyone there, but there still is like a little bit of a rush when you, like, you hit your big move and get the pin, and the crowd like cheers. What was your finishing move? I'm intrigued now. Oh, I used a I used two different moves. Um, like my big match finisher was a frog splash, and then uh, my main finisher was a, it was a pedigree variation, basically a double underhook face buster. I didn't do like a proper pedigree. It was more like I pick him up for a double arm suplex and drop him face first. Paternastro Press. Yeah. It was basically a ripoff of uh, Sua's finisher. All Dragon Gate finishers. Of course. I did well. just a bunch of moves from dudes in Dragon Gate. Um, which was Tori Oman at the time. It was the early 2000s. That's my pro wrestling story. The videos are out there. I own them all on DVD. Well, now, now I'm going to uh, surf the depths of Daily Motion to find something. For like, the group went for like seven years, I think, at college. Oh. So there's just hours and hours of footage. We had a weekly TV show called Weekly Beatdown. And we did uh, usually three live events a year. Halloween Hell, the All Community Rumble, and uh, Kicking Ass on the Grass. <laughs> so there's your, your walk down Hampshire College memory lane with Jeffrey Paternostro. I feel like a Mason Avenue should... should do this our next email is from david one of our many davids we have three davids this week dear jeff and Lickspittle. that's not very uh, flattering to you steve well i've been called worse i know you've argued that gms are not the sole reason for any team's success but isn't it about time we start to acknowledge sandy i feel like that hasn't been a problem on this show but okay we'll go for it is there a gm in baseball who's done more with less Another example of his genius is the under-the-radar non-signing of Lucas Duda. Should we pencil in Murph as our 2016 first base platoon with the rejuvenated Kadire? Previously, a lot of Murph... Everybody's offering Murph a contract. Greg Karam started a trend on the show. Everyone wants to sign Murph up. Previously, I've been prepared to say goodbye to Murph because of our second base logjam. Now we have a place for his bat because it seems like a bad idea to re-sign Lucas. I just don't like his leg kick tendency to pull and streakiness. Thoughts? he's, He's a pretty good hitter. You can talk about streakiness about Duda and then <laughs> not, not talk about Daniel talk Murphy. About Murphy. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Another question, what's up with Nemo? He hasn't been playing, and I've heard he hasn't been healthy all year. Any insight, regards, and apologies, David? So I stay out of the, as a general rule on this show, we try to stay out of the whole Omar's team versus Sandy's mess thing, whether sort of ironically or otherwise. Because it seems like the goalposts keep moving on that. I've seen like beat writers give credit for players on this team that Alderson acquired because like three steps before that they happened to play when Manaya was there, but nobody mentions that like half the uh, every dude Manaya traded for Delgado, Laduca were all players that Steve Phillips signed. Right, and Cologne is part of Omar's team, right? So yeah, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> so just the, the goalposts keep moving, and it's a proxy argument anyway. It really has nothing to do with. Uh, why can't we just enjoy that the Mets are doing good? But no, people are just going to ignore it. Like, Omar was, had strengths and weaknesses, and both sides ignore the existence of either because he made yeah. a quote once that says sabermetrics equal false hustle. Oh, that's right. Um, and it's just... So my more general point has always been, you know, sort of the 
general manager as corporate CEO in the Steve Jobs mold just isn't an accurate depiction of what happens. But GMs get judged on results, fairly or not, and yes, it was a good trade deadline. So Alderson gets credit for that. Yep. A common refrain on the show has been, like, what's it going to, when he has to go out and get the guy, when he's not trading the guy, when he has to go out and get the guy, can he do it? He did, and he didn't give up anything of real value. Right. He didn't trade from the near-term future or the high-end prospects. It's sad to see Fulmer go, but for me, that's more of someone who has to recap everything and and watch the minor leagues, unless that, like, okay, this guy's going to have a very important part of the Mets in the future. Yep. That trade, that Suspettis trade has already been a win for the Mets. Yeah, I mean, the first couple of days, I was more down on it because I was like, well, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Suspettis to begin with. And I was like, well, maybe a platoon of Conforto and, and who, you know, Kadir, whoever's laying around, could equal you know his production. But he just, he's been raking, you know, what is it, eight home runs in the last four weeks? Whatever yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's probably to a certain extent a hot streak, but he's a very yeah. good baseball player. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's an offensive uh, juggernaut, maybe. You know, Kelly Johnson and Uribe haven't been great, but they're better than the guys they were replacing. And Uribe's had some big hits. And he's hitting for power. Big hits, big jaw. Big hits, big jaw. So, uh, let's unpack the Lucas Duda thing. Like, it's an old player. Like, I don't know if they should sign Duda to an extension. I was a little leery about it this past offseason. Um, and all he's done, and let's be honest, the price has gone up because he's basically done it again. And it's an old player skill set. But he's younger than Daniel Murphy. And look, Murph's bat doesn't play at first base. It just doesn't. <laughs> no. Unless yeah. he basically does, what again, what he does this year. Which he might, but he's had a season like this before. And uh, then he went back to being Murph again. You know, he got a little power pop. He's striking out a little bit less. I just don't know if it's sustainable. And he's a very bad defender now. Um, neither, regardless whether you're signing Murphy or Duda or, or both or whatever. You know, neither's going to be a fit past 2017 probably for this team. But Duda's peak performance is far outpaced Daniel Murphy, so I think you have to roll with him. I mean, we have readily, I don't want to say readily available replacements for Murphy, but we do. Whereas Duda, we don't necessarily, so he's kind of more yeah, Murphy is not a readily available replacement for Duda, because I don't, just don't think he's a replacement for Duda. Yeah, I mean... He's not a bad player. He's just about to be an expensive one. Right, that's a... I, would you... I, I mean, make Greg might. <laughs> but I, Greg, I, I, <laughs> Greg won in three years 24, I think. Which, you know, in a, in a vacuum would be good. I don't know if he would take that or not, but... He seems he's always made noises like he wants to stick around, and he's given quotes before. He's making about eight million this year. It's oh, that's a good amount of money to make. And I, I like I made it. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't seem to be you know particularly interested in, in chasing riches at least publicly. And he's a weird enough dude that I could see him actually just being like, oh, I like playing in New York. Yeah, yeah whatever. Right. Yeah, three years from now, yeah, make the same amount of money. Sure, fine. Hey, you know what? I wish a I wish there were more players like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, but 
unfortunately be. I wish it was someone other than Murphy because, you know. You want to suspend it. Yeah, I'll take eight million a year to play in New York. There you go. Um, as for Nimmo, he had the knee injury in the spring that kept him out for like six weeks. So, I mean, you can read into how fully healthy you think he is or is not since then. You know, I saw him. He did not look like there were any lingering effects to speak of. Uh, he was off this week, so he apparently took a ball off his nose. Uh, you know, after a bad ten days in Vegas, and had Twitter, Twitter panicking about him. I just, uh... No. Look, it's, it's, look, it's not a major league impact profile anymore. You know, you see what I said earlier in the show about Luis Carpio potentially being a better prospect than some of the guys that are going to get number one talk. But, you know, he, he should contribute to a major league team. He said 87 plate appearances at AAA, where he's walking as much as he's striking out and not striking out that much. Let's not go crazy. He can play three outfield positions. This is useful uh, yeah, with like, him. I think maybe because he was, like, the first Alderson draft pick, people have overreacted to every hot and cold run he's had throughout his entire professional career. Yeah, I mean, some people saying, like, this this recent stretch of Nemo, like, oh, he's a fifth outfielder, maybe a fourth outfielder if you're lucky. I mean, there's a bit of a... Uh... That's, that's a bit extreme. Yeah, there's some recency bias. And, like, last year when he was yeah. raking in St. Louis, he's like, oh, the power's going to come, he's going to be an everyday guy. Look, the profile's never really changed. Yeah. I've seen Nemo... Well... 15 to 20 times throughout his professional career. Yeah. I go back and look at the actual numbers. It's probably about 20 times. I've seen uh, him twice. I thought I was special. <laughs> <laughs> and look, the... Yeah, he never developed as much as I thought he would. But I think sort of the tools, the toolsy story we were sold on him as a draft pick wasn't entirely accurate. Um, you know, he came in when I saw him in Brooklyn. There was some legitimately polished baseball skills here. You know, he's not. You know, he's the guy from Wyoming who never played high school baseball. Yeah, you know, so what? He played American Legion in the entire showcase circuit. No scouts were going to see him play high school ball, even if there was a high school team in Wyoming. They would have seen him play Legion on the showcase circuit. Everybody knew who he was. He had a you know a sub-first-round grade on him from yeah. Baseball America and other places. He was you're legitimate. Not, he wasn't... This isn't like Sid Finch. Right, you're not being selected in the first rounds. You're not being considered in the first couple of rounds if you're a complete nobody. Right. And there were tools there. He just, you know, the... the he never really developed as much as I thought he would. But at the same time, he still has retained his ability to play center field at a good level. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's... Not he, the end of the does world. Have a strong approach. Look, I don't know. Yeah. That's the kind of it's, it's the kind of profile that can fall apart to a certain amount in the majors. I'm sure we'll find out one way or the other. Um, but you know, it's not. People are going nuts because he had a bad ten games in Vegas. It's just like, come on, guys, calm down. And going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about Chris Matt, if we're going to see if he can hack it at the majors or not, that still is a pretty big accomplishment. He's made it. Well, I mean, when it's a top half of the first round pick, the standards are a little higher. Still, though, I mean, I'm just saying he's not a complete washout at this point. Right. And and even if he projects to be, you know, even if he does project to be a fourth outfielder or, you know, a full-time starter on a second division team, that's still a decent outcome for a draft pick. Not the optimum one necessarily, but it's not a bust by any stretch. Of the hey, yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. 
one more of our many Michaels checks in. Hello, Jeff and Steve. I haven't written in a while, but it seems like a great time since you didn't have any email on the last podcast. Yeah, there was a reason for that. In the spirit of counting chickens before they hatch, I have a question about the Mets playoff roster and then some thoughts on the offseason. Bartolo Colon is unlikely to start in the playoffs. I certainly hope. But may not be well suited to pitching in relief. My question is, do you think they should leave him off the postseason roster? Do you think the Mets would leave him off, or would they carry him on the roster because he is so well-liked and a well-respected veteran? I mean, he might pitch out of the pen. He pitched out of the pen this week. And there are always rumors in Oakland, it has actually been reported, that he refused to pitch out of the pen there when they were in the playoffs. But, you know, fuck it, just keep him around. Yeah, I mean, look at this last stretch of how... He's been pretty know, good the last month. Yeah, and the, the last stretch of a couple of days. We've had how many extra inning games? You know, uh, I don't want to say that, you know, Gil Martin or Torres has been have been overstretched. But a guy like Cologne, you could, you know, if if you had to, you could leave him in a game for like four innings in relief and whatever. Not. I mean, if not, you're not, even if you're not putting him on the playoff roster, I would just have him travel with the team. Like, <laughs> that's true. Too. There's that's a story. True uh, I may be misremembering this, but Irene Dolan, uh, who writes uh, covers the A's, very famously on on her podcast told a story about they were on a cross country flight during the playoffs. And uh, all Bartolo Colon did for, like, the, whatever, five-and-a-half-hour flight was watch Home Alone 2 twice. That's right. I remember Directly back-to-back. Back. <laughs> it is a good movie. It is. It just, yeah. like, back to, oh, to watch it. I mean, the, the, he's, he legendarily hates to fly, which is crazy because he's been in baseball 20 years now. But uh, it's just funny that maybe that's his, like, calming mechanism is just watching Home Alone 2 over and over again. Hey, we need more people in baseball like that. I mean, as far as the actual, like, the pitching rotation or pitching staff in the playoff goes, you know, if you move Mattson Thor to the pen, plus you've got Addison Reed, Clipper, and Familia, that gives you five bullpen arms, three starters. At that point, you probably only need a lefty and either Verrett or Robles for length. I wouldn't use more than 10 arms. I think 15 to 10 works for the playoffs. I'm sure because we use 13 12, it'll be 14 11, but meh. And maybe Cologne gets in there. As for the offseason, I was just reading a lengthy thread discussion about re-signing Suspettis and or extending a qualifying offer to Daniel Murphy. Here we go again with the Murph. We took, we, I will say we took a long hiatus in the podcast for discussing Daniel Murphy. So we can start talking about him again. But you're quickly, listeners, you're quickly wearing out the Murph re-welcome with me. Many seem to think there was no way Murphy would accept. I think he would probably take the $16 million and just get his four-year deal the next year. I think you're right. I like Murphy, but I think we could better spend that money elsewhere. I figure our second baseman next year will be either Dilson or new fan favorite Wilmer. <laughs> While we need third base final stenosis insurance, Wilmer could take over at third if needed, leaving Dilson at second. Um, so... The other thing you have to keep in mind is I don't think the Mets can offer a qualifying offer. Because if Murphy turns it down because he thinks he can make more money elsewhere, it's going to submarine his value. And he won't make more money elsewhere because once you have the pick attached, I guess it's a little dicey for a team. He's just not that kind of free agent. And there's also the risk of you offer and he accepts, and now you have $60 million of your 2016 payroll... 
which let's say generously more than half of your realistic 2016 payroll <laughs> tied up in David Wright, Curtis Granderson, Michael Kadire, and Daniel Murphy. Not optimal. Not optimal. As for Suspettis, I see only one way the Mets re-sign him. The Mets go far into the postseason, if not all the way, generating tremendous fan excitement and showing Suspettis all the best parts of being a star player in New York City, perhaps hiding the worst. The Wilpons, also caught up in the excitement and flush with increased ticket sales, make a reasonable offer, say five years, $125 million. Suspettis would have to decide before anyone else could make him an offer. He decides he wants to stay. In this scenario, Suspettis' current contract actually works for us, because we all know the Wilpons won't win a bidding war. Did I mention I love the podcast? Michael. Well, thank you, Michael. So I've been doing a whirlwind media tour recently, um, and we get a lot of Ioannis Suspettis questions on these various like radio hits and whatnot, podcast appearances. So I have a pretty practiced answer, Steve, so I'm going to go into my spiel. Go ahead. If you're going to sign Ioannis Suspettis, you have to do it now. And by now, I mean tomorrow. I think the you know business is closed for the day as we record this at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. You can't wait until after whatever. The Mets get eliminated from whatever they get eliminated from or win the World Series. You have to do it now and you have to beat the market. And yes, it's going to be an overpay. Because you don't know what the market is. And Suspettis and his agent would rather have multiple teams bidding on him during a weak outfield market. So, the problem now is, by the time it gets to sort of the deadline, that five days after the World Series, there's nothing, nothing can happen, you know, his value is set. However teams view him, is how they view him. He can't make his value go down. Right now, on August 30th, you know, theoretically, he could tank the entire month of September. He could get hurt. There's still a minimal but existent amount of risk. So if the Mets are going to make him a godfather offer, they have to do it now. Because once it gets to the deadline, there's no risk for them. The Mets are basically setting the market for them. Once that happens, they can go take that offer to any number of multiple teams and, and drive up the bidding. We just don't know what the market is. The Mets are, are guessing blind. So I just don't see it happening. Also, the Mets are probably still broke, so just enjoy it. <laughs> That's my Jonas Spanish feel. But they're not re-signing him, and it doesn't matter. Unless he, like... I just, I don't... It, there's no reason. There's a reason they put that clause in the contract. Yeah. It was specifically to basically force whatever team owned his contracts was never going to be Oakland. Let's be clear. That's why Billy Bean didn't care. To make an offer to set the market. Then they had they, the market is set. And then they take that to... And look, it'll get bid up. It's him, Upton, and Hayward. And plenty of teams are going to need outfielders. Plenty of teams are going to need bats. And it's not a good market for bats. So he's going to get his money. He's just not going to be with the Mets. Hopefully, like the best you can hope for, 
and there's nothing wrong with it, is that he does get one thing from the Mets, and that's a World Series ring. We have one more email, Steve. We are booking. And we are ending on an up note. We're going to go out with a bang. It's from Chris. Gentlemen, a little behind on the podcast, so I'm sorry if you've received a similar question. I can assure you we haven't, Chris. <laughs> Things are going pretty well for the Mets right now, but I've been conditioned to be a little fatalistic. So my question is the following. Which player currently on the roster is most likely to do something awful in a critical situation in late September in a playoff game that costs the Mets dearly and leaves us cursing his name in perpetuity? My bet would be on Daniel Murphy doing something ridiculous on the bases, but I wanted to know what you guys thought. Thanks, Chris. The subject of this email is, of course, the next Aaron Heilman. Yeah. Yeah. So, as far as, like, the next Aaron Heilman goes, I don't feel like there's any great fits. Uh, if you want to go back to sort of the old playoff body blows, you know, Familia could be the new Billy Wagner, the new Armando Benitez, but it doesn't really fit as the next Heilman to me. Because Heilman had a certain amount of anonymity, but also a fairly long tenure, and I think there was some ambivalence from fans because he was like a starter, the reliever was a first-round draft pick. Yeah. I don't see Clippard or Addison Reed having that. Robles hasn't been good enough this year because Heilman was uh, very good in 2006. Nice is the best pitcher option, but he's likely starting, so the the best, I guess, worst you'll get there is Steve Traxel. Um, if you do want to look at it just situationally, so taking sort of pitcher hitter out of it, it's probably got to be Daniel Murphy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and really the possibilities are endless. It doesn't have to be on the base. It could be anything. Tahada. I think it's a good option here, but I think the expectations for him are so low, generally, that he's not going to really get our goat. He's Tejada, so... And yeah, he's not going to... What is he really going to do? Yeah. Like, Buddha, Buddha grand ball? Yeah, or... like, okay. It's, yeah. Murph could do something spectacular. And Chris, this is horribly depressing. I was, I was being facetious when I said it was a up note. <laughs> to end the uh, end the email segment on because the show's not over but those are your emails as always you can email the podcast at podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com I assume none of you will be emailing us for a while because that was a lot of emails and you got it all out of your system I'm sure we do have an IFK Gothenburg update Steve because it is Sunday and they did play this morning they all right. bested Gefla IF 3-0 Coupled that with an Elfsberg loss, and they are clear at the top again, two points ahead of AIK in North Shoping, and three of Elfsberg. I misspoke on uh, Wednesday. They have eight games left to play now. It was nine then. But they are heading into the international break with their tails up. Uh, Michael Bowman and Soren Reeks are finding the scoring touch at the right time, bringing in some much-needed goals after the transfer of Las Bay to Brentford. But they do still have away fixtures left with AIK and Elfsberg, so if they're going to win the Elfsvenskan Liga, they're definitely going to have to earn it. But as of right now, the road does go through uh, IFK Gothenburg. That's your IFK Gothenburg update. My Whirlwind Media Tour does continue. I was supposed to be on uh, from the fans on CBS Sports Radio last week. I got bumped, which is fine. 
Mets play the Phillies plenty more times starting this week, so I should be on this week. I'll tweet that out. Yeah. Uh, I was on the Earnestly Speaking podcast this week, talking Mets baseball. And uh, what I'll just do is I'm just going to put a link to all my recent media appearances and the podcast post, which probably won't go up tonight because it's very late. One more time, I will plug, not for the last time, but I, I will again plug our Amazing Avenue Audio live show at Pitch Talks, September 17th at the Catch Brewery in Astoria. You can use the code Amazing Avenue to get $5 off tickets. Greg Karam will tell you you can also use his last name, Karam, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Nobody. I didn't want to mention that. But... I, I, yeah, I mentioned that. We all got to promote the brand. Of course. I believe you can also use my last name again, but it's the Mason Avenue is easier. And it's the Mason Avenue show. It's not about me, Steve. No, of course not. Greg doesn't realize that, but not about me. Not about you. It's about the it's about the it's about the team, it's about the site, about the podcast. It's bigger than all of us. Ugh. I'm just about finished with this beer. I've had like three. <laughs> Jesus, I can't even it's too late. I've been moving stuff all day. I'm exhausted. If I like chugged three beers, I'd be asleep on the keyboard. Nope. 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 It would not be pretty. I should have internet in my apartment tomorrow. I'm supposed to have it on Thursday. But and I, I put my cell phone in my cell phone number into internet forms God knows how many times over my life. And it's been basically the same cell phone number at this point for over a decade. Mm. I've never put it in wrong. Except when I was putting in the contact number for the cable guy. So, yeah. That was a day of I spent uh, tracking down what exactly happened when the cable guy didn't show up. This happened. No good. Uh, it won't be as bad as the last time I moved into a new apartment. It took like three weeks for Comcast to get me service. When there was no podcast. There was a podcast. Now that I'm done, I can say now uh, my marriage has survived its fifth move with the relationship still mostly intact. Well, congratulations. Yeah. It's good. It was dicey there for a little bit, but we got everything moved out. For the, Who you know, could resist you? Come yeah, on. Seriously. <laughs> uh, when I, you know, dash out twice a week to uh, talk about the Mets for a couple hours. Clearly, our listeners like it because uh, eighteen emails. You know, eighteen people can't be wrong. Exactly. All right, that's it. Show's over. <laughs> good night. We'll see you. Good night. We'll see you next week. Next week, this week again. I guess it's Sunday. Well, I mean, we'll probably do another episode this week. Stuff's gonna happen, right? Good stuff. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, they're playing the Phillies, so. But whatever happens, we'll talk about it later this week on another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.